Well, I think the, one of the, my favorite parts of being a pastor is being able to do, uh, have membership meetings with those who want to be members and being able to hear their testimonies. And sometimes I feel like I'm selfish and that I get to hear all these stories of how, what God has done in a person's life that uh, brought them to faith. And it's true that all of us as Christians are trophies of God's grace. And uh, so I asked uh, Daryl Rick, you can come forward, Daryl, uh, to share his testimony uh, with you. This is something I think we should do more of as God gets glory as he works uh, uh, in, in our lives. And we're recommending Barb and Daryl at the end of the service for membership and you'll get to know them, if you don't already, a little better uh, through Daryl's testimony. So, Thank you, Sam. It's a lot easier being involved in the sound system back there than up here. Anyway, and I learned new appreciation for people who don't hold the mic exactly correct. I uh, was looking at Sam's title here, Be Freed from the Prison of Religion, Trust Christ. And I was trapped in a prison of hating what I called religion for all of my 20s and a good chunk of my 30s. I did not have a separation in my mind of Christ and religion. It was all the same thing. And... Uh, when we met with Sam and Scott second time and asked my testimony, I think the way Sam put it was, could you uh, explain, you know, just how did you come to Christ? And my answer was very, very unwillingly. I guess I was probably almost dragged, kicking and screaming. I did not want to go. And I didn't, you know, uh, I was very what you would call anti-religion and that goes clear back to when I was a kid when I uh, was in confirmation class I was arguing with the pastor and uh, I was always the kid who had a million questions was willing to argue with stuff uh, in my high school yearbook they put a little saying under everybody's name and the one under mine was if a line were crooked he would argue it straight so that was where I came from and uh, I was raised in a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church which is very conservative and I don't mean to knock the church this is not about that there was a few things that just I couldn't understand you know they believe that baptism is your ticket to heaven and uh pastor told us a story of uh, a baptism where the custodian forgot to put water in the baptismal font. So they went through with uh, the, the baptism pretending there was water, baptizing the baby. And he told us that that child was destined for hell. There's no way that person, that, that child was going to make it to heaven. And I argued with that. It didn't make any sense to me that somebody's destined to hell because of the oversight of another human being. And uh, that turned me off. And then, as I got a little older, uh, high school boys in our 
church where the ushers, we handed out bulletins and stuff like that. And uh, one fall, it would have been probably like Labor Day weekend, yesterday. I don't know how many years ago, when I was about 16, 17, um, the little town I was from would have a celebration. They had uh, a parade and a street dance and all that stuff that little towns used to do. And I was there with a bunch of my buddies, just standing around talking, and a fellow from church happened to show up and start talking to me, and I couldn't figure out what he wanted. You know, he's a friendly guy. I've known him my whole life. And he came over and he bumped against me. And he put a bottle of whiskey in my coat pocket. And he says, have fun, Daryl. And that I couldn't believe that it, that happened. But the next morning in church, I was handing out bulletins. He comes in, uh, takes a bulletin, looks at me, winks and smiles and sits down. And that just topped it off for me. This church is just a bunch of garbage. Everybody here is a hypocrite. I was lumping everybody together by the actions of this one guy, but that really turned me off. I, didn't, I wouldn't set foot in the church after that. I went to college. I was into history and government. My major was political science, and my goal after about year and a half of college was to be a political science professor and teacher in college, and I was going to get my doctorate. And my theme was going to be why organized Christian religion is the source of most of the evils in this world, because I was studying the Crusades in the rent the, before Martin Luther, you know, people that were burned at the stake, and I was lumping religion together. So that was my attitude, and then. My plans were interrupted, meeting a girl in college and then getting married and having kids. And as you all know, kids require food and clothing and stuff like that. And you have to have a job to pay for that stuff. So I quit school and we got married and uh, tried going to the Lutheran church for a little while and it didn't work and we just didn't go when the kids were little. And then as the kids got older, Sunday school age, we hadn't been in a church for I don't know how long. My wife informed me. She didn't ask me or anything. She informed me that she and the kids were going to Sunday school. And I could come along if I wished. And I declined. And they went to First Baptist, because that was where she went to college or went to church when she was in college. And that went on for a while. And it was working. They would go to church, and I would hang around, do what I wanted to do at home. We had moved out in the country, so there was a ton of work. And then she sang in the choir, and she was asked to sing a solo. And I asked if I wanted to come, and no, I'm not going to go listen to that stuff. And asked if I'd uh, listen uh, to it on the radio. And I said, sure. So they left. I pulled my pickup up to... I was building this little shed, and I was working on the roof. So I had the pickup beside it, turned on the radio, and there was a Lutheran church service on. And I thought, well, I've heard all this stuff. I don't need that. I shut it off. And then I crawled back up, went to work, and forgot about it. And dawned on me, and I ran down, turned it on. And when I turned the radio on, pastor was praying, and then he started his sermon. And uh, I didn't know the order of service, and I had missed Barb's solo by about four minutes. 
So not knowing the order of service, I had to listen in case he quit and she started singing. And there is no way in this world I would have ever listened to an entire sermon. And then the text for that day was from John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And for somebody who was anti-religion, that pushed so many buttons. And you, I have this picture, and I'm up on this roof, pickup is down here, and I'm arguing and yelling and cursing at the radio. I had a colorful vocabulary that fits into the story. And then I came home and I made up some story about the pickup radio not working, uh, about why I didn't you know, really hear her song. And got by through that. And then um, the next Sunday, they went to church. And I got thinking, does he preach this garbage every Sunday? I can't believe that somebody would do that. So I turned on the radio and listened to it. And it wasn't, in my mind, as bad. But then there's all these coincidences that happened, you know. Uh, it was part of a series of sermons, and it dealt with a little bit of scripture I was kind of familiar with. So by the time the third sermon was over, I was listening, and I had my Bible out, following through just to see if he was leaving anything out. And that went on for a while, and then our daughter accepted the Lord and got baptized. So I did go to that. Uh, and then after that, I think the kids were bugging me to come to church because I had been there that one time, so I gave in, started going, started listening, started believing, accepting it all. But I knew everything about salvation, but it was all up here. There was none of it down here. I hadn't made that longest foot and a half in the world from head to heart. And it started bothering me. And I would be afraid to go to sleep at night because I knew if I went to sleep, I would not wake up in heaven. If I died, I would wake up in hell. And it kept me from sleeping. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't get any comfort from that. I would wake up in the middle of the night, petrified and sweating. And I still didn't do anything about it. And one Sunday in church, there was, there's a verse in the Bible, and I should have looked it up, but it deals with hardening of the heart, where God says, enough is enough. And what, you know, whether that was just in my mind or the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was obviously using it. But I woke up one morning, about three o'clock, and I had this feeling that, okay, this is it. Figure out what you're going to do, decide one way or another. And I didn't like that thought. I got up, went outside. It was a nice summer night, and I was walking around the car, leaning on the car, trying to figure out what to do. Finally, I started praying, and I prayed, and I prayed. And finally, I remember saying, okay, God, you win. You're God. I'm not. I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. And I felt good. It felt a lot better. And there was still something. I knew that it was pride that was keeping me from submitting. And for me to actually, truly submit in my mind, I had to bend my knee physically. I got down on my knees in front of the car and I prayed again. And then I got up after that and that weight was gone. I mean, it was like there was a thousand pounds lifted off my shoulders. 
and the whole world was gorgeous and glorious. And I don't think I'd noticed the stars in the sky for years, and I did that night. Then I went in and went to bed, and I slept like a baby. And then the next morning, I made a mistake. I didn't tell anybody. And uh, I just kept on going. Life was a lot better. I could sleep. And then uh, about 30 days later, about a month, with the argumentative mind that I have, I got to thinking, well, did anything really happen? I'm not sure. Was this a life-changing thing? And I look back, it was a life-changing thing, but I had to question it. And then, just after I had that thought a couple of days, I was building something at home, and I hit my hand with a hammer. I was nailing something, and I whacked it really good. And I remember taking a breath, and I was going to cuss a blue streak. And it dawned on me I had not uttered a word of profanity for 30 days. It hadn't even entered my mind. And that had been a part of my vocabulary. And it was like God hitting me on the head with a hammer, like, okay, dummy, things did change. Something did happen. And it was, it felt like, you know, he said, okay, I kept this problem away from you for 30 days. Now it's yours again. You, de you worry about cleaning up your mouth. And it's <laughs> kind of like a barometer. If some of those words pop into my mind, I need to pray and dig out the Bible a little more. And that's how I came. Uh, I finally joined the church. I didn't do that willingly either. Uh, but I did go forward and, and got church membership. And then, I mean, that's the, the important thing of finally submitting to the Lord and then you get to work on different things like God gives each of us gifts, you know, which gifts has he bestowed on you and uh, how should you use them and where should you work. But you have, I had finally gotten the important thing done and that is accepting Christ and admitting that I am a sinner and God is God and I am not. And I guess that's it. Thank you for your time. One more thing. It's so funny how God works things together. In Sam's thing, the, the, the religion thing just really stuck in my mind. Uh, I was incredibly in a prison, and Christ released me from that. Okay. I told you it's the best part seeing how God works in people's lives. Let's thank God. Uh, Father, we praise your name for saving Daryl. Father, for humbling him and submitting to Christ. Father, I pray that you will use his testimony in a powerful way in everyone in this room that we wouldn't take for granted the supernatural miracle of salvation, that it's not just human decision, but it's the Holy Spirit taking out a heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, 
Father, we thank you for your work of mercy and grace that's only possible because of Christ's death on a cross for sinners. Now, Lord, as we go to your word, I pray that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would use it to strengthen our faith, that we would cling to Christ, that we would repent of sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 37. Uh, we're not going to get very far today. We're only going to go through uh, uh, verse uh, 41. But really, this whole section, all the way through chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 6, is kind of one cohesive uh, group. But we're just going to look at the first few verses of this incredible account. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of a cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I spent a significant amount of time reading about the hand-washing ceremonies of the Pharisees. The, teaching of the teachings of the Pharisees were uh, recorded in writing in the third century in the works called the Mishnah. Maybe you've heard of the Talmud, which is kind of the centerpiece of those rabbinic teachings that were finally written down. They were the oral tradition that was created by the Pharisees, this group that uh, came about in Judaism a few hundred years before Christ. So I wanted to read it for myself. I wanted to see for myself what the Mishnah said about hand washing. It had nothing to do with hygiene. We miss the point of this text if we think about eating with dirty hands. That was not the point. It was a ceremonial uncleanliness that they were concerned about. And it was rules that were not found in the Old Testament, the written law given by God, but they were man-made laws and interpretations of the true law that became so many that, you know, I, I was just getting angry reading them. Uh, it's just like, part of me just wants to torture you. I asked Laura, should I just keep reading and reading and reading? And I'm not going to do that. She told me not to. 
But I want you to feel the prison of religion. I want you to hate it with the same hatred that Christ hated it. Now when you wash your hands before you eat, according to the traditions of men and the rabbis, one must hold their hand like this or like this. This angle needs to be down. If you were to wash your hands with this angle and get a drip of water that touched your wrist and then flowed back into your hand, you would still be unclean. The angle's like this. And what you need to do, according to the first rule in the Mishnah, it says this, if a person pours water over one of his hands with a single rinsing, his hand becomes clean. If over both of his hands with a single rinsing, our Meyer, a rabbi, declares them to be unclean, until he pours a minimum of a quarter of a log of water over them. A log of water is six eggshells worth of water. A quarter of a log would be one and a half eggshells of water. If you were to pour water, according to this rabbi, over one hand, the hand is clean. But if you were to pour water over two hands at the same time, they would be unclean because the uncleanliness of this hand would fall on this hand. And then you would at least need an eggshell and a half of water to go back over your hands. Rule number two. If he poured the first water over his hand while standing in one place, and the second water over his hands while standing in another place, and a loaf of teramah, some sort of offering that's going to be offered to God, fell on the first water, the loaf becomes unclean because the water that falls out the first hand is unclean. If you accidentally dropped your offering into that water, it would become unclean. The first water, the loaf, are... Um, and, and a loaf of, or, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting me messed up here. Okay. But if it fell on the second water, it remains clean. So if you drop your offering in the second water, then your offering is clean. If he poured the first and the second water while standing in one place, and a loaf of terma, terma fell therein, the loaf becomes unclean. If he poured the first water over his hands and a splinter or a piece of gravel is found on his hands, they remain unclean because the latter water only makes the first water on the hands clean. It doesn't take in part the little sliver you have in your hands. And this is according to Simeon B. Gamiel. I believe the one who Paul studied under. If any water creature falls on the hands while they are being cleaned, they are nevertheless 
clean. I suppose they even knew about microscopic. Uh, so they had to make that rule. I've showed you a tenth of what the Mishnah says about hand washing. I watch YouTube videos about hand washing, how these must be done. I hope you can feel something of the prison of religion. John MacArthur says, being religious is not a virtue. False religion is not man ascending Godward to the pinnacle of nobility, but descending to the lowest level of blasphemous depravity. I wonder if you believe that. Tim Keller says this, religion makes us proud of what we've done. The gospel makes us proud of what Jesus has done. Religion makes us proud of what we've done. The gospel makes us proud of what Jesus has done for sinners. This story, to understand a little bit of the scenario that we're reading, is very important. To know what a Pharisee is is important. They originated in the intertestimonial um, mental period of the Bible from the last book of the Old Testament about 500 years before Christ, before Christ returned, this group that came out of a sect called the, called the Hasidim, the pious ones, began to create endless rules to add to the written law of Judaism. It was a false religion even though they very much wanted to take the written law and add these man-made laws to it. These were the middle class of society. A Pharisee was not a high roller. Those would have been the Sadducees. The Sadducees were wealthy priests and Levites uh, for the most part, but the Pharisees were these everyday People. There was about uh, 6,000 of them at the time of Jesus, history tells us. So they're not even that many, but they're kind of the superstars of the Jewish faith. The popularity they had among the people made them some of the most powerful people on the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were assemblies of either 23 or 71 rabbis appointed to sit as a tribunal in every city in the ancient land of Israel. A Pharisee is a big shot. Everyone looks up to them. No one's morality lives up to what they live up to. They take serious the most minute details of the law. If you wanted to know what a godly person looked like in those days, people would point you to a Pharisee. And right after Jesus just got done 
warning about the eyes of the Pharisees, the eyes of that generation being bad. They looked in at their lives and they saw light when really there was darkness there. He was exposing the fact that they weren't looking inward to the heart to see their sin. They looked in and only could see how great they were. Right after this teaching, we read in Luke eleven thirty seven, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. Now, I think we actually have a picture of this if we want to pull it up here. We read this a lot in the Gospels, uh, reclining at a table. Go back one. Right there. This is what we think of when we picture the Last Supper, right? Uh, Because this is what da Vinci painted. Where in reality, uh, when you would have a meal, this is a big meal, a lunch meal. You would recline during this meal. And really, the Last Supper would look more like this. What they had is they had couches around a table where you would actually kind of lay on your side and with your elbow you would sit up on a cushion and uh, you would recline at a table. So you can get a picture of what Jesus was invited into in in the Pharisee's house. I think there's one more picture of kind of how a meal would have been set up in those days. I think in the Gospel of John, we remember them leaning back, one of the disciples, and asking Jesus a question, kind of leaning back into his arms. You can see uh, how that could, could be. So Jesus gets invited, I think, by a Pharisee who probably has a sincere heart. And the reason why I say that is he was surprised by what Jesus did. It didn't seem like the, the word for astonished that is used by him, it seems like it caught him off guard, not like in other places where they were trying to trap Jesus. But Jesus goes to have recline at a table with the Pharisee, and the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. He was astonished at this. Now in Matthew 15, 2, let me just give you a little bit of what the gospels say about hand washing. Uh, Jesus' disciples were accused of not washing their hands. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat? So different than Matthew 15, This isn't the disciples breaking the tradition. This is Jesus breaking the tradition. And in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, we get an idea of how important hand washing was. Mark 7, 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat 
unless they wash their hands properly. Now that's important. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. This is something that was widespread among all the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. And then we're told that uh, um, in verse 4, and when they came to the marketplace, uh, they said they do not... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Can you imagine how miserable? I just read you a few about washing hands. Can you imagine a meal being a Pharisee? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, now we're in Mark 7, verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They taught that this was the doctrine of God and they're the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God in order to hold the tradition of men, Jesus said. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. <laughs> he says, you guys are as slick as they come. You make doctrine, the tradition of men, in order to rebel against the commandment of God. External religion is a sham. It has always been a sham. It'll always be this way. Show me a religion that multiplies symbols and ceremonies and religious man-made traditions, and I'll show you a religion that is empty and wicked on the inside. Any religion that is full of symbols, full of ceremonies, full of outward things you can do apart from the heart is a dead giveaway that this is religion. This is not truth. Jesus came into the world so that he might reveal truth, not religion. John MacArthur says, the external religion of the Pharisees was a sham. They exalted symbols on the outside and cherished sin on the inside. Their preoccupation with the external rituals caused them to overlook the significant issue of their wicked hearts. It's a sure mark of false religion that the more symbols that are there, the less spirituality in reality is there. Now, it's true, as I looked at different websites, if you're Buddhist, you can buy all sorts of stuff for your house, all sorts of different statues, all, all sorts of different things to look at and pray to and worship. 
I went to a website called www.catholicfamilycatalog.com and I clicked on a on a, a heading called statues. And as I went through, I was just amazed. I was, there's probably 200 here. Well, I actually just realized there's four in a row. And I started scanning down. I started counting rows. And I realized there was 1,260 different symbols or statues or statues of saints that a person could prayer to, pray to. And that's not even counting jewelry endless realities of symbolism. And I don't say that just to pick on the Catholic Church. Every religion that emphasizes traditions of man and goes beyond the Scripture is in the same category. In fact, I I read about how you can buy the statue of Joseph if you want to sell your house. There's an 11-step process about how you buy the little statue, how you bag it up in a plastic bag. You go to within four feet of your for sale sign. You lay uh, the statue of Joseph in the ground, say a particular prayer, point it like an arrow back at the house until your house sells. And the legend goes, and and in this article, it it called it a legend. As the legend goes, if after your house sells, you don't go re-dig up the Joseph, whoever buys the house will only be there for a short time, and they, they will move on, and they'll move on. So it's important that you recover Joseph and put him back on your shelf. Now, I hope you're not getting proud right now thinking, well, I'm glad I'm not that because application to Baptists is coming at the end of the sermon. We do the same thing. We have the same root sins that the Pharisees had in their life. We can have in our lives. Jesus said to them, you cleanse, in verse 39, point one in your notes is, see through the blinding nature of religious symbolism. Don't be impressed by outward symbols of religion. Rituals, robes, crowns, incense, statues, Don't be impressed by the outward nature of religion. That's what Jesus is pointing to. That's why the Pharisee was shocked. Who is this Jew that did not wash his hands before he ate? We're going to see next week the result of people who come into contact with religious people. How they become defiled how their souls can be damned to hell if they also buy into the false system of religion. But Jesus says to them, while Jesus was speaking, so get the shocking moment, (laughs) 
he, he sits down for a meal and he was astonished that he didn't eat. And then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of a cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now you might think Jesus doesn't seem very loving, but Christ is showing the most loving posture a person can have who thinks they're saved because of religion. He's trying to expose the true nature of their heart. He says you do really good on the outside, but on the inside, this would have been really offensive, you're full of greed and of wickedness. This comes up again in Luke 16, verse 14, where we read the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees were superstars. All the men worshipped them, thought they were amazing, gave glory to them. And he says, but whatever man's worshiping, it's an abomination before God. They were, looked religious on the outside, but they were greedy on the inside. They loved the attention. They loved the financial gain of being a Pharisee. In fact, in Luke 20, verse 47, Jesus, speaking of the Pharisees, he says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You see, more than the most blatantly sinful person, religious people will get the hottest part of hell. they will get the greater condemnation. Not many should be teachers. They're teachers. They're showing people how they ought to do it. The way to eternal life when in fact, Jesus says they're making people twice the sons of hell as themselves. We're going to see next week that he says you're like unmarked tombs. People walk over you and they become defiled. You look like a good person. You might even look like a nice person. But all your little rules turn people away from Christ in the heart. Because if you don't know you're a sinner, you don't need the Savior. Pharisees were glory thieves. They loved the praise that would come from man. He says they're full of greed and wickedness. This word for greed means to seize something by violent force. We could use the word rape. They raped people. They violently would come into their life. They would take their possessions and they would take their soul to hell. This is an offensive word that the Lord chose to describe what their hearts were like. Now, we live in a society that says as long as you have a faith about something, as long as you're religious, as long as you have your own thing for you, 
that's good and that's great, but that's not true. There's the truth and there's religion. Jesus Christ came to reveal truth. He says, I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't come to bring religion, but to teach the truth to mankind. If you add to Jesus, you create religion. If you say Jesus plus all these man-made traditions are necessary, you create religion, whether Jesus was a part of it or not. And so they were greedy of heart. They were greedy for glory. They wanted glory, power, prestige. They desired honor and glory for themselves when all the glory and honor is supposed to belong to God. If you will, turn with me to Matthew 6. And I just want to read, this is the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to see Jesus attack this notion of seeking self-glory head on. Matthew 6 verse 1 He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now you might say, well, what's the big deal? As long as I'm practicing righteousness, sometimes people might see it. Sometimes people might not. But Jesus says, be careful if that's what you want, if that's what you desire. He says, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as they would do. They would actually do that. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, they've received their reward in full. And then he says, But when you give to the needy, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to be seen by, love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Then he gives us the Lord's Prayer. And then in verse 16, he says, When you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. These were people who were greedy for others to see them because they were greedy for glory. They were glory thieves. In fact, in John 12, 42, you don't need to turn there. He says, nevertheless, Many of the authorities believed in Jesus, believed in him. 
but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Many of the Jews, this was so infiltrated into them, they knew he was the son of God, but they wouldn't confess him as God because they loved the glory that comes from man. It's a scary thing. Isaiah 2.22 says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? Why do we care what people think? All people are is the last breath they've been given. Think of that. You want praise from someone that doesn't even exist if God doesn't give them another breath? That's what you want to live for? Psalm 146 says it, says it this way, don't put your trust in princes, in the son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Now the Pharisees were not saved. They did not have the Holy Spirit at least the majority of them, did not have the Holy Spirit inside them. So we can read about the Pharisees and we can say those dirty, rotten Pharisees. It's true, it's wicked how they were on the inside. But if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit residing in you and God has given you a new heart, you're not yet glorified. You're still fighting sin in your own heart and you're fighting the same types of sins the Pharisees struggled with. Wanting to please man, wanting credit, wanting honor. I can prove it. Is there anything we do as Baptists that we want other people to see? The goodness that lies within us. How do you project yourself out to this world? How do you do it? What do we do on Facebook? We project the best life, the best parts of us, the parts of our families that just seem to be grooving so good. We love to look at how many likes we have. What's your motivation for running your business well? Do you want people in town to know that you're a good one. And yet when we live like this, we're glory thieves. It doesn't honor Christ because it's not true. The beauty of being a Christian is that we can, in a sense, not be hypocrites, not because we're not still struggling with sin, but because we don't seek to hide our sin but admit who we are and point to Jesus as our only hope. 
God hated the hearts of the Pharisees because they were sinning at the most root part. They wanted creation to worship them rather than what they were created for, that they would worship God. All of us in this room were dead in our trespasses and sins. Children of wrath. If you shined a light in, it would be ugly. Even as Christians, what if we put on the screen your thoughts this week? Every thought you've ever had this week, what if we put it up on a screen? You would have to admit that you would be horrified because of remaining sin inside your life. There is one note that the Christian church ought to hit. And it's that our only hope is in Christ alone. The finished work of Christ. We have nothing to boast about in and of ourselves. Nothing to point to to say, look how good I am. When I asked Daryl to share his testimony... I knew that it wasn't going to highlight the glory of Daryl, but the power of God to change a person's heart. If your heart's rotten, and I know it is, if you're a non-believer and you know you are, you haven't clung to Christ yet, you ought to ask the question, how can my heart change? You can't do it yourself. You need a resurrection. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You need God to take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. Jesus told Nicodemus, you need to be born again. You need the Holy Spirit to come inside and make you alive. Will you admit who you are? That you're a sinner. As Daryl said, will you bow knee Will you humble yourself and say, my only hope is in Christ alone? If you will, you are adopted by God, brought into the family of God. Your sins are taken away. Christ's righteousness is put in your account. And you don't have to live a hypocritical life, pretending like you're better than you are. You can admit your struggles and say, Christ is my only hope. That's my prayer, is that we would be people who don't feel like they have to come to church and pretend like we're so good. But we're people so set free that we let the light shine in. We go to our brothers and sisters in Christ for help. And we worship God for the grace that we have in Christ. You can have him if you'll cling to him by faith. Father, I pray that you would do this supernatural work in all of our hearts. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers, who are trusting Christ, who have been born again. Lord, that we would hate the remaining Pharisee that's in us, that we would hate the part of us that wants to look at other people's sins rather than admit our own. 
Lord, I pray that we would glorify you as we admit who we are and as we cling to you as our only hope. Thank you for God's word that we can read about this meal Jesus had with the Pharisee and an experience and understand truth that can save our soul 2,000 years later. Lord, we know that your word is living and active. Pray that it would work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.